Revelation chapter 19. In response to the description of the coming destruction of the great prostitute at Jerusalem for her violation of the covenant with God, we hear four hallelujahs in heaven. And I just would remind you, this is the only time, this is the only place in the Bible that we find the word hallelujah. We find it four times here in this chapter. The fourth one is what we examined last Sunday, in which there is rejoicing because the Lord God Almighty reigns. The judgments are proof, not that we needed any, that God is in control, not the dragon, the serpent, not the first beast, not the second beast or the false prophet. So when we look at these events, we should give God glory and rejoice that he is, in fact, in control, not the impersonal forces of history, you know, the natural cycle of events that you have movements that grow and, and, and reach sort of an apex and then they sort of decline. No, God is in control of human history. There should be an understanding that God rules. But it isn't simply that God rules over all human events, and he does. But rather, in the establishing of his kingdom, God rules. So, hallelujah, rejoice because the Lord God Almighty reigns, and because the wedding of the Lamb has come. Um, we should appreciate the fact that there's so much more to the rule of God than rules, if you wish. We talked about this in Sunday school, that people don't like God because of the rules, the giving him authority. What is undergirding all of that is his love, his deep affection. It is the foundational attitude. And therefore, when we are told that God rules, it is very natural that the very next thing is because of the wedding supper of the Lamb and of the Bride. It is a description of the relationship between God and his people that of a marriage. We are to rejoice because the bride has made herself ready. And as we saw last week, the King James says, to her was given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. We saw also that there's a contrast between the unfaithful wife, the great prostitute, and the faithful bride as pictured here. This dual emphasis of one who makes herself ready, but who is given the ability to make herself ready. God is in control, but we are responsible to be obedient. So I said last week, people ask, if God is in control, why do I have to do anything? Uh, the question I, I mentioned last week, if God is working, then why am I sweating? We are to be obedient because God has commanded us to be obedient. In Philippians 2, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what we are supposed to do. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And we saw toward the end that John is rebuked for the second time in the book of Revelation. It is because of his mistaken attitude toward the angel. Uh, and the angel's response, I think, is of critical importance, particularly when he states, and if you look at the last part of verse number 10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is that the spirit, John, the apostles, in the spirit of prophecy are testifying about Jesus. That is what the spirit of prophecy is about. Um, this is important, and it's not only true, but it is important for what we will be looking at today. What we find in the rest of chapter 19 is a description of the lamb, the bridegroom, uh, as he comes. I thought I would sort of take a sidetrack a, a bit for a minute, a parenthesis, and, and just remind you of something that I'm sure that you know, but 
perhaps we have forgotten as we've gone along the way. The nature of the Christian faith, that is how we know what we know, is seen in three things. First of all, revelation, that is the revealing of things, is the basic presupposition of the Christian faith. That is, what we know as God's people, we could never learn simply by observing the world. We could never know by looking at human beings, at nature, at human history, or anything else. What we know about God has been revealed by God himself. It is a disclosing. God has revealed something that otherwise we could not know. And other, something that, perhaps even if it was revealed, if God did not give us the ability to understand, we would not understand. The word in Greek is apocalypsis, and some, some translations have the book of Revelation entitled the Apocalypse. It means to remove a veil or a covering, to reveal what is behind it. And without revelation, not the book, but revelation from God, without the disclosing, we would not know what we know as God's people. It isn't that we're brilliant, that we're smart, that somehow we have keen insight into things. It has been revealed. But secondly, revelation at its heart is the disclosure, the unveiling of a person. Oftentimes we think of revelation as, in terms of propositions, dogma, ideas, principles, revealed truths. We would use the phrase. What is revealed in Christian revelation is not what, but who. And that's why when we start the book of Revelation, if you look at the very first verse, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, it is possible for us to know a lot about a person. In fact, in my field in history, people have written biographies of people that they've never met who have been long dead, and they know much about that person. Um, but they've never met that person, and in a real sense, they do not know that person. In the same way, we may know a lot of things about God from the Bible. Someone who is not a Christian may read the Bible and learn much about God, um, but still not know God. There must be presence. There is a person. Revelation is revealing God to us. It's not about facts, about figures, about dogmas. It is about a person. And the work of the Spirit, as we saw in verse number 10, is the spirit of prophecy. It's a testimony of Jesus. The Spirit tells us about Jesus. The third thing is that revelation is rooted in historical events, supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 19, in a few minutes, we will look at a vision of the Lord Jesus presented in a way that up to this point, I think, is unfamiliar to us. But it is presented in the context of historical events. I think without being rooted in history, if we don't understand it, then the, the Bible simply becomes sort of a magic book or a, a book of sayings with no connection to any aspect of history without any connection to a person of history. It just becomes this sort of airy thing that we might learn good things from and, and might feel good about ourselves from, might learn how to live our lives no, it is rooted in history. It is about a person. It is here to disclose to us this person, the Lord Jesus. Without it being rooted in history, by the way, um, revelation can become very arbitrary. And we have many people in the church today 
who will say, well, the Lord told me this or the Lord told me that, and to go contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture. In Scripture, the work of the Spirit is the testimony of Jesus. It is a disclosure, it is about a person, and it is rooted in history. I think that that is important for us, particularly from the Protestant tradition, because for us, the Scripture is the final authority, the Bible is the final authority. If we're not careful, I think our focus will be on the Bible rather than the person that the Bible reveals to us, that is, God himself. Revelation is to reveal a person to us. And so today, as we look about this, we read about the rider on the white horse who comes, it isn't simply to convey to us information. It is to disclose to us a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Today we begin the fourth group of sevens in the book of Revelation. We have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, and now we have the four, or I'm sorry, the seven I saw. The NIV has it in Greek, it's literally, and I saw. From now uh, on, John will say seven times, and I saw, and he will tell us the things that he has seen. The first vision is the rider on the white horse, and this is found in verses 11 through 16. So follow along if you would as I read. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. With the revelation of the wedding supper of the Lamb and his bride, heaven is now open and the Lamb, the bridegroom, is now revealed. Um, if you recall, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, uh, several times John has said that heaven was opened. That is, that a revelation is occurring. He has given insight into things. In chapter 4, he sees the Lamb in control of human events. In chapter 11, the opening of the temple in heaven. In chapter 15, the completion of God's wrath. John sees heaven open and God's wrath is poured out on those who have broken his covenant. Now heaven is open and John sees the victorious champion of the church, Jesus the victorious Lamb. Now you might be saying to yourself, uh, Damon, I, I've noticed that you refer to this writer as the Lamb. He's not referred to as the Lamb anywhere in verses 11 through 16. In fact, he's not even referred to as the Lord Jesus. Why is it that you say he is the Lamb or that he is the Lord Jesus? Well, let's, let's examine the passage and, and look at the description, the portrait that is painted of this person. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. The white horse we saw in chapter 6 uh, represents triumphant military achievement. And so even before we get to the rider, we start with the horse, we already know that something is going to be spoken of in terms of triumph and victory. We have a strong assurance, a sense of victory. And now we see the rider who is called faithful and true. We've heard similar things to this already in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, 
the letter to the church in Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And it ties in with what we saw in the first chapter. Grace and peace to you, John writes, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. And so, as the vision begins to unfold, we already have a sense that we know who this is. Someone whose name is faithful and true, the faithful and true witness that is the Lord Jesus. But then we are told with justice, he judges and makes war. Now, this is not something that we would expect. Not of the Lamb, certainly. Maybe not of the Lord Jesus. I think on our own, we would not have come to this conclusion. But we should listen to the revelation of God. We should listen to what is written in Scripture about the Messiah. And let me read to you a number of passages from the Old Testament. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. That's from Psalm 72. And Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. All of creation is singing, as, as the psalmist describes it. They're all singing and they're all rejoicing. Why? For the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Creation rejoices that God is coming to judge. From Isaiah 11, the chapter that deals with the branch of Jesse, speaking of the coming Messiah. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's very similar to what John has written. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And then finally, from Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And so John sees this one sitting on a horse who comes to judge and to make war. We are told further, his eyes are like blazing fire. And if you go back to John's first vision in chapter 1, you will read his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. So indeed, this, this is the Lord Jesus that John is seeing again, but in a different way, in a different dimension, in a different context, as someone who is on a horse, someone who will make war, someone who will judge. On his head were many crowns. In chapter 12, we are told that the dragon uh, was wearing seven crowns. In chapter 13, the first beast, sort of mimicking sort of the image of the dragon, wears ten crowns. Uh, both of them sort of pretending to rule the world. Remember, seven and ten are numbers of completeness. Yes, we rule the world. But this is only a, a false pretension. They do not rule the world. God rules the world. And he rules through his son, the Lamb of God. Here the writer does not have seven crowns. He does not have ten crowns. He has many crowns. And our last hymn today was, Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. 
He has universal rule. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then we are told he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Again, this is something we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. This, this idea of having a name, a secret name that nobody knows but the owner himself or herself. Uh, in chapter 2, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, known only to him who receives it. I think we need to be careful that it's not saying what we think it is saying, because the language that is used, the idiom is used, that is used, is that of ownership, of acknowledging as one's own. It is not simply that my name is secret, that only I know it, but it is my name and my name alone. And the name he has is his name and his name alone. We will see in a minute that he is given a name, and it has been suggested that that is in fact the name that is his and his alone. So now the portrait continues of this rider on the horse. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, if you're tracking with me and you agree that this is the Lamb of God and you read about blood, immediately we think of his sacrifice, the crucifixion, Jesus' blood that is shed for us. But he comes to make war. And as we will see in verse number 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We've seen earlier this, this imagery from the Old Testament. And let me read to you a passage from Isaiah 63. Who is coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? As his clothes have got red all over them. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption was in my has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. And so we have the sense that this Lamb of God has come to perform the wrath of God the Father by trampling out the nations in the wine press. But, lest we would be so quick to say, okay, well, that's, that's what it means. Let's, let's move on to the next description. You notice that the language says that his robe is dipped in blood. It's not splattered with blood, which one would expect if you're you know, tromping in the wine press. It is dipped in blood. And if you've read the book of Leviticus at all, blood, dipping in blood, is, is a, a recurrent theme in the sacrifice that the priest is to dip in the blood and sprinkle it. Dip and sprinkle. And here his robe is dipped in the blood. And so I think we're told two things at the same time. It is his own blood that was given as a sacrifice, but for those who rejected it, he has now trampled them in the wine press of the fury of God's wrath. 
He is both the lamb that was slain and the lamb who makes war and judges. And now we are told his name. His name is the word of God. And I think one must know John's gospel to appreciate what is being said here. Do you remember how the gospel of John begins? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. A few verses later, he writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is a name that belongs to him and to him alone. He is the word of God. And I think this is a good place to be reminded that our allegiance, our fidelity, our faith is not simply an intellectual agreement. Oh, yes, I read the book of John. I read the book of Revelation and I agree with what it says. Therefore, I am a child of God. I'm a Christian. I agree with what the Bible says. No. Revelation is the disclosure of a person. Our allegiance is to a person, to the son who came to tell us about the father and who has been with the father from the beginning. This is the word of God. This is the lamb of God. This is the one to whom we owe our allegiance. I fear that for many, um, the gospel has become merely an intellectual thing. Here, let me tell you what the gospel says without recognizing or forgetting that the gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes not only to reveal himself, but to reveal the Father. He's the one who teaches us that when we pray, we say, Our Father. The gospel is not merely information. It is the disclosure of a person. Then we are told that the armies of heaven were following him. Now, when I first read this, my thought was, oh, the angels, you know, the, the millions and millions of angels are coming with the, the lamb. Actually, I don't think that's what's being said here. And if you look at the passage, it says the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, we know from just what we studied last week that the bride is preparing herself. And she is wearing these garments, fine linen, white and clean. It is the church herself. It is the church coming with Jesus in judgment and to make war. But this may create some problems, I think, that we will have to resolve. And I, I think it's easily resolvable. But we are to come with him. By the way, if you go through the book of Revelation, the church rarely is pictured here on earth. I mean, it is to a certain degree, but generally John sees the church in heaven. The martyrs are in heaven. They're up there praying, how long, O Lord? So when Jesus comes and he comes with the church, he comes with us. You know, say, well, okay, Damon, I'm not in heaven right now. I'm right here. Well, read what Paul says. That in the mind of God, our position, we are now with Christ in heaven. Yes, right now we're here. But in the mind of God, we are in heaven. I think we need to recognize something. I said that there might be a problem. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to remember that 
there are two things that are tied to the coming of the kingdom of God. The first is the salvation of God's people. Jesus, when he came, he began to preach. He said, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is among you. It is the coming of salvation to God's people. That's one side. The other side is that the kingdom or the coming of the kingdom of God is judgment on those who reject the kingdom. God has come to bring salvation. That is the coming of the kingdom. But those who reject the kingdom, it is judgment. They will be destroyed. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for two things. The spread of the gospel, that the gospel would spread over the face of the earth. And second of all, in praying that this would happen, we acknowledge that judgment will also come. That's difficult. When we pray your kingdom come, we pray that the great saving goal of God will come to pass. That his kingdom will spread all over the face of the earth. This gives us insight into the coming of this, this writer here. Because when we read this, we might have a mental picture almost of a crusader, of a knight templar of someone who has a big red cross on his shield and is just coming to kill all the people that he can. And in fact, if we continue, we read, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And we're thinking, well, there, there you go. That it's to kill people. It's the Crusades all over again. No. It is the saving of people. It is the speaking of the gospel. It is that they might hear the truth of God's word. The image of the sword coming out of his mouth has been used throughout the book of Revelation, beginning with the first vision in chapter 1, that out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. Um, it ties in with what we find in the Old Testament in Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Okay, that still doesn't sound too good. But in the letter to the church at Pergamum, I think it's fleshed out. Repent, therefore, Jesus says. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Still doesn't sound good, does it? From Hosea chapter 6. Therefore, I will cut in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Boy, this just doesn't sound something like the gospel. But remember that he will rule the nations with the iron scepter. The only way that a person can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is for them to submit. For them to humble themselves before God and say, you are God and I am a sinner. And sometimes that requires a battle. In fact, in many people's lives, before they came to Christ, there was this struggle between the work of the Spirit and their own hardness of heart. It is the gospel that says, you are a person of unclean lips. You are a sinner. You are in need of God's grace. And sometimes hearing that is like being struck by a sword. Sometimes hearing that is like being stabbed by being slapped in the face. 
But when the writer comes, it is not simply to destroy, it is to discipline. It is to bring people to faith. It's like a scalpel in a doctor's hand. It can either bring life or it can bring death. The gospel can bring life or it brings judgment when it is rejected. The description continues. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And this we have seen already, that he alone, the writer, is the one who trods this. He is accompanied by those who follow him, but he alone brings the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, this name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Perhaps this is the name that is his and his alone. We're not told. But his name, by the way, is not the result of his coming. It's like, oh, now we can call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords because he defeated all the nations. No, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and therefore he brings the gospel to the nations. Otherwise, what gives him the right? What gives Jesus the right to say to his disciples, you need to go out into the world and preach the gospel? What gives him the right to do that? Well, before Jesus told him that, he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Jesus could say, go. He has the right to send out his people to preach the gospel. This is the one who conquers the world with the gospel, the word of God. Do you remember when we were going through the early part of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, that we heard this phrase over and over again, to him who overcomes. And if you remember, this is John's language of faith. That is, where, where Paul speaks in terms of faith, John speaks in terms of overcoming. In his first epistle, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. It is not so much that we will be victorious versus being defeated, but rather, will we stand with Christ or will we be traitors? And over and over again, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, to him who stands with me, I will give. And then we have a list of things that are given. The psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now briefly, very briefly, we come to two more visions and the rest here of chapter 19. Separate visions connected, but not extensions of what we've seen already. The first one is in verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Earlier in the chapter, we read of the marriage supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here we have another supper. It's quite different, isn't it? The first one is to celebrate the love, the consummation of the relationship between God and his people. God is one with his people. Celebrating a wedding. Uh, this supper is very different. This is in a gruesome supper. But it is, in fact, a reflection of what is found in the Old Testament. God told his people, if you obey me, I will bless you. 
If you curse me, I will, or if you disobey me, I will curse you. And let me read to you from uh, Deuteronomy 28. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. There is no one to frighten them away. It says, you know, you disobey me, I will curse you. And the birds and the beasts will eat your bodies. No one to drive them away. There is an interesting verse, both in Luke and in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And it just seems to, for me at least, doesn't seem to quite fit there. But in in Matthew 24, um, he's talking about what's going to happen. And then Jesus says, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. What's being said? It's speaking of the judgment that would come on Jerusalem for breaking the covenant. And here we see it again. This is what will happen because they broke the covenant. Now we have the third vision here, verses 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Here we have the specific defeat of the first and the second beast, the first beast and the false prophet, those who made war against God's people, those who made war against the church. Here the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And I don't think the purpose is to give us a description of hell but rather to use the language of Sodom and Gomorrah. How God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah so he would destroy the first beast and the false prophet. But the Lord willing, next week uh, we will come back to this um, and it will be dealt with in in greater detail uh, in the chapters to come. Let me wrap this up and draw it to a conclusion, our time together. Things to think about and to meditate on in the coming days. First of all, the nature of revelation. We do not know what we know because we are smart, because we have insight. We know because God has revealed it to us. Without the revelation of God, we do not know God. The second thing is, revelation is not simply to give us information, to somehow load the computer in our brains of information. No, it is to tell us who God is. It is to reveal a person the one in whose image we are made, the one whose image we bear. And thirdly, the revelation takes place in human history. It happens here on earth. God reveals himself. But this leads to the second thing that I want us to take home with us, and that is how we are to view the Lamb. We view the Lamb of God oftentimes as the sacrifice, Here on earth, God with us, Emmanuel. It's very appropriate, eminent God with us. But John sees heaven opened. There he sees the rider. And I think something is being said here, and that is that Jesus is not only with us, he is transcendent. He is, in many ways, beyond us. And that's important, because if we see God as only here with us, 
We might do what people do with false gods. We think we can manipulate him, pull the right string, say the right words, do the right acts, and we can get what we want from him. There are no strings to pull from heaven. We cannot manipulate the transcendent God. We cannot manipulate the transcendent Lamb of God. They exist outside of creation, but also inside of creation. But as existing outside of creation, we can't get them to do what we want. God is God. We're not. And I think we need to remember that, particularly in times of prayer, that God is in control. He commands us to pray. But we can't trick God. He's not a vending machine. We can't somehow think, if I play my cards right, if I stack the dominoes up in the right way, I can get what I want. No, the portrait we have here of the writer is of someone he judges. He makes war. He treads out the winepress of God's wrath. We follow behind. We are those behind, not those in front. I think in the world in which we live today, as we saw in Sunday school, um, we do not like the idea of God telling us what to do. That's very inconvenient for us. We, we would rather just be our own bosses. But we want God to pitch in every once in a while. When we're a little low here, a little low there, problems here, problems there, we want him to pitch in. I think we all do that. But no, he is the Lord God Almighty. And we're to be those who follow behind. Let's pray together. Father, ever since the serpent spoke to Eve, we have wanted to replace you. We have wanted to control you and manipulate you. Sometimes we forget that we would know nothing about you if you had not revealed yourself. Even in your creation, you reveal yourself. We would know nothing apart from your revelation. And you've not given revelation so that we would know a lot of stuff, a lot of information. You've revealed yourself that we might know you, the one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one whose image we bear. May we in the days to come think on these things and meditate on them and draw closer to you in prayer. Prayer that is not simply the exchange of information, but is conversation. One person speaking to another. Your children speaking to you. We thank you for the gift of prayer. May we make use of this wonderful gift. I thank you that we could come together today to worship you. And now as we leave this place,
go to our own places. May your grace and your spirit go with us. May we remember to pray for one another in the coming week. Hold each other up in prayer. May we reflect your love to those made in your image. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's sing the doxology together and let's do so from uh, hymn number 31. We sang it earlier, All Creatures of Our God and King. The doxology is in italics there at the bottom. Would you stand please as we sing this together? bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.